Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I came as soon as I heard. Where's John? Ma! The doctor's finally here for Pa! Come on. He's in bed where we found him. Heads all mangled and swelled up. He said a few words early on, but he's been quiet since the neighbors showed. It's right in here. You mean that he's... My God. How long is he? He's still breathing. Excuse me. Pardon. I need the bedroom clear. Miss Hossick. Margaret. Wait. Yes. You were with him in bed when it happened? That's right. I woke up in the night and found him like this. His skull's been split, then caved in. All this blood. I must have slept right through it. Certainly you felt something, or heard something. I was asleep. The force it would take to open a wound like this, the size of the bed, there's no way you could have- I was asleep. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the 1900 murder of Iowa farmer John Hossack. This week we'll cover John's abusive relationship with his wife Margaret. Next week we'll hear why Margaret's community blamed her for John's murder without a shred of hard evidence. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goldtar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Margaret Murchison was born on November 19, 1843, in Scotland, but she didn't stay in her motherland long. When Margaret was only five years old, her parents moved the family to Illinois, joining a growing wave of Scottish immigrants in search of new opportunities across the Atlantic. At the time, Scotland was nearing the end of a dark period of the country's history called the Highland Clearances, 
For around a century, landowners systematically forced Highland residents out of their homes to turn their property into sheep farms. Families who had spent generations in the Highlands were suddenly homeless. Their dwellings were often burned to the ground. Some moved to the coasts or headed to the Scottish lowlands in search of work, but many, like Margaret's family, decided to leave Scotland altogether. In comparison, life in the New World was full of possibilities. Margaret and her family quickly carved a place out for themselves in the United States. They ran a successful farm in Stark County, Illinois, and joined the local Presbyterian church. The Murchisons were committed to their adopted home. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Margaret's oldest brother, Alexander, immediately knew he had to enlist. The Union sent the rebels running in Virginia. They want to push on into Richmond and put the whole thing to rest. (laughs) This man, McClellan. You'll be reading my name in there soon. What's that supposed to mean? Alexander thinks. Your brother can think for himself, Margaret. It means I'm riding in tomorrow to enlist. No, you ain't. We didn't come this far to get tangled in another country's fight. There's a duty. I I need you on the farm. Not off in someone else's war. Pa, this is our home now. It's our war. And I'm not asking. I'm telling. Alexander Murchison spent three years fighting for the Union. When he got back to Illinois in 1864, he set out to build a life of his own. Margaret's other brother, Donald, did the same. By 1866, Margaret was 22. With her brothers mostly independent and her father getting older, Margaret's parents started hiring men to help out seasonally around the farm. That's how she met the man who would become her husband, 25-year-old farmhand John Hossack. John Hossack was born in 1841. Like Margaret, John was Scottish. His family left their home in the Highlands when he was still a baby. The Hossack family moved to Canada, another welcome destination for Scottish immigrants at the time. As an adult, John Hossack traveled down into the United States looking for work, and he found it on Margaret's family farm. Margaret's father likely felt a connection to the young immigrant's story when he hired John Hossack for the 1866 season. The 25-year-old moved onto the farm that spring. John left when the work was done, but he didn't stay away from the farm for long. He continued to visit off and on over the next year. Finally, in October of 1867, John headed west into Iowa with his savings and a plan. There's a boy here to see you. What? A boy here. Says he's interested in buying the plot. A boy? I'm no boy. My name is Hossack. I've come a long way with the intent of buying land. I heard you both were selling. If you aren't, I'll, I'll be on my way. We're selling, but my husband's wasted too much time on folks who aren't serious. We don't have much time left to waste. You're asking $480? I come with cash on me. Han? What? Best come out and meet this boy. Uh, man. John Hossack spent $480 to buy a small house on 120 acres of Iowa farmland in Warren County. A bargain even in those days. But there was a reason the land was so cheap. John Hossack's new home wasn't completely in the middle of nowhere, but it was close. 
Only a few other farms dotted the horizon. The nearest town was at least half an hour's ride on horseback. The farmhouse itself wasn't much to look at either, but John had already lived in three different countries by the time he was 26. He was ready to settle down. John had moved 4,000 miles from his birthplace to finally claim his own small slice of America. He had land. Now he needed a wife. So he turned around and headed back to Margaret's family farm. Later, rumors would circulate that it was Margaret's sister Jane who first caught John's attention. Jane was in her early 30s, old enough to be considered an old maid at the time. But regardless which of the sisters John initially had feelings for, it was Margaret who he got pregnant. So it was Margaret who he married. Well, how'd you let this happen? It happened. Hossack. The man's a fine worker. But ever since he came back from Iowa waving that title deed around... <sighs> not the only thing he's waving around, I guess. Pa! He'll make you a wife, at least. Yes, of course. He already proposed. Don't worry. And I told him about our church. We thought we could... <sighs> Walking down the aisle of United Presbyterian with your belly growing. No. You'll find somewhere more suitable for the situation. Ugh. Now help me carry these in while you still can. Margaret discovered that she was carrying John's baby at the end of 1867. They were married the next January in a small private ceremony at her brother Donald's house. A few months later, the pregnant woman and her new husband set off on the journey to Iowa. Margaret didn't know that this would be the last time she'd ever see most of her family in Illinois. Coming up, we'll hear about Margaret and John's isolated and often violent life on their Iowa farm. And now, back to the story. In 1868, 27-year-old John Hossack and his new wife, Margaret, moved to John's recently purchased farmland in Warren County, Iowa. Margaret barely had time to settle into her new life before John decided to move his parents in with them, too. In the summer of 1868, 24-year-old Margaret found herself nine months pregnant, far from home, and living with a family of strangers. Margaret gave birth to a healthy boy on August 16, 1868. She was pregnant again before his first birthday. And after that, the children kept coming. For the next two decades, Margaret was either pregnant or raising a newborn baby. Keep that baby down. I'm trying to... Where's my pipe? John, are you in for the day? It was right on my desk this morning. Do you have a moment? Where'd you move it? You must have moved it, I told you. Did the boy take it? Oh, one of these days, he's gonna learn to listen. It's right here, under your paper. But I was saying... Hmm, where's the tobacco then? I always keep... John, listen, I have news. Fine, what is it now? We've got another coming. <sighs> of all the things we need right now. Margaret had her ninth child, Ivan, in September of 1887. She was two months away from her 44th birthday. Raising nine kids in the 1800s was a full-time job. 
But Margaret was responsible for a lot more than child-rearing around the farm. Rural women at the time were expected to clean the house, cook the meals, and even tend to the chickens and cows. A January 1884 copy of The Household, a syndicated newspaper column for housewives, explained, A really good housekeeper is almost always unhappy. While she does much for the comfort of others, she nearly ruins her own health and life. Cassie, have you finished the darning? Pa needs his vest by morning. Cassie! Stop, Willie. Put that down. That's not a plaything. Put it down. That's coal for the stove. Anna Jane, come gather Willie up. Wait, that Shep out by the coop. Something must have gone in with the hens again. Annie, let Willie be. Finish chopping this for me. Willie, no! Leave that, I said. Quit! I need to... Margaret, what are you even doing? Don't you hear that? Something's after the chickens again. Do I have to handle every little thing for you? Margaret would never say a bad word in public about her life in Iowa, but it's not hard to imagine that she lived the same difficult, lonely life as many women in the late 1800s. But while Margaret stayed home with their large brood, John Hosick found his community in Iowa. John made friends with the other men in the area, joined fraternal organizations like the Masons, and even ran for the county treasurer's seat in 1898. He bought more land and expanded his 120-acre farm to 200 acres. Around Warren County, Iowa, John Hosick was a popular and successful man, but his family saw an entirely different side of him. John was a strict and sometimes violent parent. He screamed at his children when they disobeyed him or talked back. John frequently butted heads with his son, John Jr., who they called Johnny. And when Margaret defended her children, John turned his rage on her. Neighbors would later admit that they knew about John Hossack's violent temper. He punched and slapped his wife and children. He threatened his family with weapons and waved loaded guns in their faces. Multiple people who knew the Hossack family heard that John once hurled the lid to their family's stove at Margaret. But Margaret didn't know what to do. She was stranded in Iowa and far from her family. Even if she decided to make the journey back to Illinois, the trip would be nearly impossible with all her kids. Margaret's only chance of help was from the neighbors, but it seemed they couldn't or wouldn't do anything to help her. Someone's at the door. It's the wind. Lie back down. Hang on. It's Margaret Hasek. Margaret, what are you doing here so late? What's wrong? (laughs) It's John. He's in another mood. Get inside. Cassie stirred him up tonight and he went wild. When Johnny tried to get in the middle of it, John pulled his knife. I didn't know what else to do. It's only John's nerves. He wouldn't hurt the family. When he gets a certain way, there's no getting through to him. He swore he'd gut Johnny. Next time he'll do it, I'm sure. William, you have to do something. He's not right. What do you suppose I do? Gather a posse and go straighten him out myself? If you start it, then you better end it. What's that supposed to mean? If you don't, 
it'll only make it worse. Go on home. You don't know what you're saying. John's a good farmer and a good man. No man like John's going to follow through on threats like those. Please. He just gets spun up sometimes. Let him alone for a while and he'll cool off. Everything will get back to normal. But things around the Hasek farm didn't get any better. Margaret reportedly started telling folks in town that John's death would be a blessing to her and the family. She said that she hoped something would happen to him. People in the area heard the stories of John's abuse for years. Some even talked quietly among themselves about whether John deserved to be institutionalized. But none of them intervened when Margaret Hasek came to them for help. One neighbor later admitted under oath that he paid very little attention to Margaret's talk when she came around the house. He just told her to keep quiet about John. On Thanksgiving Day, 1899, the violence at the Hossack farm became too much for the neighbors to ignore. After feeling disrespected by his daughters that evening, John flew into another rage. According to some reports, Margaret had to climb out a window to escape the house. She ran through the rain to the eastern edge of the Hossack's farm, where Will Conrad and his wife lived. Margaret begged Conrad to give her a ride down the road to the house where her 29-year-old daughter lived with her husband, Ev Henry. She told Conrad she had already tried to walk the five miles herself, but the weather was bad. She hadn't been able to grab her shoes when she snuck away. Conrad tried to convince Margaret to stay over with him and his wife, but Margaret was afraid that John would come looking for her at the Conrads. She refused to stay. So reluctantly, Conrad hitched up his wagon and brought the woman to her son-in-law's house. Margaret stayed the night at Ev Henry's, who escorted her home the next day to help calm John Hossack down. Ma, you've come back. Hi, Ev. Afternoon, Cassie. Cassie, I need to talk with your father. Is he in a listening kind of state? I don't know. He's been quiet most of today. But last night, when he found that you had snuck away... Oh, there she is! Back after a day! John? And you brought Ev Henry along. I wondered who you ran off crying to. Now I see. Hello, John. I just came by to help patch things up. What'd you tell him, Margaret? What kind of lies did you fill him up with while I was over here tending to the farm? My farm! You just live here. It wasn't like that, John. You're turning my own family against me like you always do, dragging the whole town into our business. Calm down, please. You're shouting so loud the whole county can hear. You want the whole town knowing our business? You think I'm shouting? Come now, John. We're all family here. Let's go on inside and- You set a foot on my porch and I'll shoot you dead for trespassing. My rifle's loaded and ready inside. Don't test me. Thanks for your kindness, Ev. I'm, I'm sorry. You'll have to go. Ev Henry's attempt to calm John down only made things worse. The shouting match continued, louder than ever. So, Will Conrad gathered two more neighbors and headed to the Hossack farm to attempt a more serious intervention. By the time the men arrived, John Hossack and Margaret had calmed down a bit. They were discussing possible ways they could separate. 
John was ashamed by the way he lost his temper, though he likely felt worse about blowing up at Henry than the violence he routinely brought on his family. John offered to give the majority of the farmland to Margaret and only keep a small section for himself. The arrangement might have fixed the family's problems and given Margaret the escape she needed, but Conrad and the neighbors didn't approve of the solution. Divorce was legal in the state of Iowa in the late 1800s, but it was almost unheard of in rural Warren County. It was an embarrassing and very public process, often covered by local newspapers. Margaret would also likely be asked to prove in court that she had suffered inhuman treatment and that John put her life in danger. Even a separation like John and Margaret were considering would be frowned upon by the community. Conrad and his fellow farmers quickly talked the couple out of it. The neighbors didn't care about stopping the cycle of violence in the Hossack household. They just wanted to make sure the family kept it to themselves. One of the men, Fred Johnston, told Margaret that he never wanted to hear anything more about it. He said that they should stop talking about their problems with outsiders. All right, I think that's good enough. Get your overcoat. Let's go. Kids, you remember to mind your father now. Fred, wait. Don't leave yet. Would you mind staying over tonight? I think our part is done. We said what we came to say and he's cooled off. I have to be going. Fred, please. It's just going to start up again once you leave. But if you're still here, please. I don't think that'd be right given the circumstances. Quit worrying. He's all calmed down now. (sighs) Just know one thing. Everything he said, everything he said to you, it's a lie. Just know that. Take care, Margaret. From the neighbor's point of view, the intervention worked. They got what they wanted. Margaret allegedly stopped asking for help, because they weren't any help at all. She would have to find some other way to fix the problem. Next, we'll discuss the family's shaky truce that ended with John's gruesome murder. Now back to the story. Whatever troubles 56-year-old Margaret Hossack and her husband John still had after their neighbor's intervention, she mostly kept them to herself. Over the course of 1900, friends said that the couple seemed to have straightened things out. Two of the older Hossack children left the farm that spring, In March, Margaret Lucretia, who went by the nickname Louie, married a local man named Joe Kemp. The wedding was the opposite of John and Margaret's modest ceremony 32 years earlier. Louie and Joe Kemp were married in a big and joyous celebration at the Hossack's house. Johnny, now 24, was offered a farmhand position by another local farmer and moved away from home, escaping his father's violence. But the relationship wasn't so bad that it kept Johnny from visiting the farm on his days off. By the fall, only five of the nine children still lived at home. One of them, 18-year-old Will Hossack, would eventually admit that the trouble, as he called it, had been a part of their family for as long as he could remember. But after the intervention, Will said they moved on. The abuse they had all suffered was, according to Will, just a memory. May Hossack... John and Margaret's 20-year-old daughter, also later agreed that the so-called trouble was over that next year. 
There were still some disagreements around the house, but nothing was as bad as before. But Margaret Hosick reportedly felt otherwise. At one point, not long after the Thanksgiving intervention, Margaret broke down in tears when a friend asked about her private life. All right, get going. Out. Oh, morning, Eleanor. I see you found her. It's this gate. Cattle keep wandering in and setting Shep to barking. We should get them in anyway. Another snow is coming. Temperature feels like it. Come on back now. That's a girl. Thank you, Margaret. Of course. Good excuse to get a moment with you anyway. That's true. We haven't seen you in a while. How's everything between you and yours? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't... It's fine. I'm sorry. I thought all that was behind you. I thought that after Thanksgiving... (laughs) It's as bad as it ever was. It is just as bad as ever. (laughs) No matter what the truth was, Margaret and her family, at least outwardly, maintained the appearance of peace that year. They even threw a few good parties for their friends and family. Thanksgiving dinner in 1900 was a major improvement to the one that came before it. The older children and their families all joined Margaret and John for dinner at the farm. Even their dog, Shep, was there. Will, as the oldest boy still living at home, took it upon himself to kill the turkey, using the family's axe that they kept in the woodpile. According to everyone in attendance, the party was a success. Johnny even brought his new girlfriend along. Either the dark, violent issues that had nearly torn the family apart in 1899 had disappeared a year later, or John and Margaret had finally learned how to hide them in public. On the morning of December 1st, 1900, John Hosick dragged himself out of the tiny bed he shared with Margaret. It was Saturday, and the 59-year-old likely could have used a little more sleep after the Thanksgiving festivities but he had already lost a few workdays because of the holiday, and there was plenty to be done. So he grabbed his youngest son, 13-year-old Ivan Hosek, and hitched up his wagon. The cold air bit at John and Ivan's faces as they rode to the nearby coal bank. The pair spent the better part of the day loading coal so the family would be stocked through the winter. The pair made it back to the farm by dinner time, and Margaret fed her husband and young son. She spent the rest of the evening cleaning up and sewing as John sat back and read the newspaper. It was a calm and mellow night for the Hasek family. The coal stove kept the house warm, no matter how cold it had been all day. Will, did you chop the wood while we were out today? Yes, sir. Jimmy and I took care of it. And what'd you do with the axe? It should still be out there by the block. Get it in the granary. The temperature's dipping. Don't want it lost under a foot of snow again. Yes, sir. Ivan just left for the back house. He could- I don't care how it gets done. Just do it. Yes, sir. Ivan! Pa says to put the axe away on your way back in. (sighs) Takes the whole family to move one axe. John played with Ivan for a while before deciding he was ready to turn in for the night. He headed into the room he shared with Margaret on the first floor and climbed under his blankets again. But Margaret had more work to do. 
She continued sewing while her children went off to sleep and then headed to the pantry to finish up some butter she had churned a few hours earlier. According to Margaret, she heard their dog Shep barking at something multiple times that evening. Thinking that some of the neighbor's livestock must have made it onto their property, Margaret headed out to the porch to check. She didn't see anything, but Shep kept barking. Her husband was awake in the sitting room when she came back in. Why aren't you in bed? Something woke me up. And you know I can't just lie in bed awake. Oh, sure. I wanted to start the boys in school on Monday, but I may need Will home next week to help with things. We need lumber to fix the wells. And then there's the matter with the hogs. Sure. And if the weather's right tomorrow, I'm thinking I'll go down in the morning and hear Mr. Hopkins preach. If the weather's right. Sure. I hope tomorrow turns out nice. It could go either way. It could. Margaret eventually climbed into her side of the bed, and John came in a little while later to join her. He fell asleep with his back to her, facing the wall. It was the last time they would ever share a bed. Around 12 or 1 a.m. on the night of December 1st, 1900, Ivan Hosek awoke to his sister May shaking him. Ivan immediately knew something was wrong. At this time of night, the house was usually quiet except for the sound of the coal stove burning in the sitting room. But tonight, the house was full of commotion. Ivan could hear the voices of his older brother Willie and their sister Cassie in the next room, and then he heard his mother crying. Ivan leapt out of bed, pulled on his clothes, and ran to his parents' room. It was dark except for the oil-burning lamp in Willie's hand. Willie was trembling, and the motion from the light threw irregular shadows around the bedroom. But 13-year-old Ivan Hosek could still make out the scene. John Hosek lay on his side in bed. He was alive, but barely. His face was mangled almost beyond recognition. His skull was caved in and split open with a five-inch gash. The bed was wet and soaked with blood. Ivan lost his father the next day when John finally died from the brutal attack. But Ivan would soon lose both parents after John's neighbors and friends sent his mother, Margaret, to prison for John's murder. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders, We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode on John Hosek. Join us next week as we dive into the aftermath of John's murder and see why Margaret was fingered as his attacker without a shred of hard evidence. For more information about the Hosek family, amongst the many sources we used, we found Patricia Bryan and Thomas Wolfe's book, Midnight Assassin, a Murder in America's Heartland, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by River Donahay with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Kimlin Tran, Rebecca Thomas, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 